Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, and I'm your host. On today's episode, we're actually going to be addressing an email we received from a lady who had some questions about the validity of Scripture. One of the main points of contention were, how do we know when Paul says that every bit of Scripture is God-breathed, how do we know that it wasn't just his own opinion or any other writer in Scripture for that matter? Continue listening as we answer these questions and more on today's episode. But before we get there, I want to let you know about something we got coming up on August 24th at Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Do you want to better understand the gospel and how to share your faith in today's culture? Well, join us Wednesday, August 24th for a barbecue and coaching. Andy Steiger, president of AC, and Bill Hogg, National Director of Message Canada, have been engaged in evangelism across Canada for decades. Together, they will share what they have seen and learned to help you better engage your family, friends, and co-workers with the gospel. There will be practical teaching, group discussion, and time to ask all your questions. We hope you can join us. Doors open at 5.45 p.m. Dinner starts at 6. Registration costs $7. This includes dinner, And in the registration, please indicate if you have any dietary restrictions or food allergies. For more information, contact us at discipleship at northview.org or info at apologeticscanada.com. Hope to see you there. And now for the episode. Oh man, listeners, welcome to the AC Podcast. You're jumping into like round three of me trying to start off this podcast. It has not gone well. (laughs) But uh, today, uh, looking forward to getting into our topic. You know, here at Apologetics Canada, we receive emails periodically from people that are saying, hey, I'm going through this issue, or I have, you know, this question, would you guys, would you guys speak to it? And recently, we had somebody reach out to us, and and we asked if we had permission to just to read a portion of what they wrote us, and, and they agreed. And we thought this would make for a great podcast. So here's the email that I received. I believe the Gospels, and I believe in Jesus. I am a Christian, and I want to follow God with my entire life and everything I do. Your book and others have reinforced my belief in God, Jesus, life, and resurrection, and that we are saved by grace through faith. I want to be able to follow the Word of God entirely, and there are some things that are really hard to follow. Because of that, I want to know it's true, or at least have enough reason for a deep faith. I want good reason to believe that the words in Scripture really are all inspired by God. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm saying. And yes, I do. I I appreciate what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) So I have questions, but I want to ask these things humbly. More than anything, I would like to be wrong on all these accounts and be able to simply believe instead of being in this constant wrestling match in my mind. Again, the mind wrestling matches, I've been there. I, I fully understand. How do we know Scripture is really inspired by God? It was Paul who wrote this text not God who said that directly. It seems like a circular argument to trust the guy writing Scripture when he says that all Scripture is inspired by God. And really what you're getting at here is this idea of circular reasoning. People use this verse all the time to back up the point that you're supposed to believe everything Scripture says, but to me, it holds no weight. Uh, So what she's getting at here is this idea that, well, how do I know the Bible is true? Well, because the Bible says it's true. Yeah, and... She's specifically pointing to that verse in 2 Timothy 3, 16, right, where it says all scriptures God breathed and is good for, you know, teaching, rebuking. That That's the verse that a lot of Christians go to to say, see, the Bible makes this claim for itself kind of thing. And she's saying right. that this sounds like circular reasoning here. As well, Paul did not know all that would be canonized and considered scripture, I think. So how would he know at that point that all Scripture was inspired by God. Also, how can we trust Paul? We know he believed and was saved, but there are so many Christians today with different theologies. We still believe these people are saved, though, if they hold different open-handed theologies. And wasn't it a bunch of men that put the canon together? Sinful men with their own biases? I don't doubt that they did it with good intentions, but I don't understand how they could pick out what was inspired by God. I know they had a standard for what could be put in and that they ensured theologies aligned with each other. But don't we still read scripture today and think there are contradictions? Some people see contradictions where others don't. What if other people from another time decided to put the Bible together based on what they thought was a coherent theology? Would it be different? I wanted to read that email in its entirety. I know it was long, but 
I, I think you really get the weight of what this girl's wrestling with. And, and I can sure appreciate the thoughtful questions that she's asking. You know, the first impression that I got right off the get-go was, you know, the first thought in my mind was, well, good for her, right? This only goes to show that she's taking these questions seriously. She's taking her faith seriously. She's not just kind of, you know, riding the wave, so to speak, of, you know, her parents' faith or anything like that. This is a process of her owning her faith. So good for her. Yeah, I would. I, I thought the same thing. I, I can appreciate just not wanting to hear things on surface level, especially because sometimes we will use a scripture just to get rid of the actual argument or to dismiss somebody. So I can appreciate her wanting to push past that and actually seeing that that happens. And I would actually argue that this is an important part of developing your faith about, Absolutely. you know, Paul talks to Timothy about fanning his faith into flame. And I, I actually see this is an important part of how you actually fan your faith is you got to deal with your questions. You got to deal with your doubts. You could imagine what would happen if she just kind of shoved these down into the dark recesses, right? And said, oh, I'm not going to think about these sorts of things or whatever. I mean, really, it's like putting a wet blanket over a fire. Until you deal with those questions, those doubts, your faith isn't going to fan into flame. That's right. And it is a foundational level question. It's not a question about something that's like rather uh, inconsequential to essential Christian belief. If the Bible, if scripture doesn't have a divine origin, then in one sense, it can be ignored, it can be broken up into parts, it can be, you know, you can take parts from here and leave out parts from over there that you don't like. If it's not scripture as a whole, and, you know, coming from God, then there are all sorts of things you can capitulate on and cut up and, and in that sense, it doesn't really matter because you could have a, a different understanding of the origin of those things. That's great. I think that we can agree this is a great email, great questions, and I'm looking forward to jumping into it. And as I was reading this email, I really just saw that she was asking three major questions. And so I just want to just put this out here. If, if you feel like we didn't answer the exact question you had, or maybe you're listening to this today and you're like, well, I got a follow-up question, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to engage further uh, with any with any of you on this. But but listen, I, I've broken this up into three major questions. This is what I see them being, and we're going to just jump right into things today and begin to address these questions. So the first one is, how do we know Scripture is inspired? And, and ultimately, off of that, you know, she's asking, you know, and is this, is, this a, is this circular reasoning? Second, did Paul understand his writings as Scripture? And again, as a part of that, can we trust Paul? And now third is, how was scripture determined? So let's take a, a, a run at both of those. Let's start off with how do we know scripture is inspired and is it circular reasoning? Yeah, so I would say the question of inspiration is a question of whether God has authored some books and not all books, right? So ultimately, it's a theological question that has historical underpinnings. So as a theological question, it relates both to has God really said and do we have it? And on top of that, do the books we have possess authority? Now, notice both the word authority and the word author have similar linguistic roots, right? So do the books we possess have authority, and can we know who the author is? Both authority and author stem from a Latin word, octor, which means originate. So these two issues, they're actually very related in the conversation of inspiration, because basically... The question behind the question of inspiration is, who is the primary author? And in finding that out, we get to the source of who possesses the authority. Oh, I see, I see what you're saying. But now let me, let me throw this back at you the way that she's asking it. So she's saying, okay, okay. And let's deal with the specific. We're dealing with Paul. So Paul's the author. But if Paul says to me, hey, you know, Timothy, that, you know, what I'm, what I'm writing to you is scripture. And Timothy says, well, how do I know that? And he says, well, because I told you. We have to back up a little bit because I think we can say, if I ask you, Andy, who is the author of the book of Romans in your Bible? What would you say? Paul. And? God. 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 So there's like a two part to it. And I think this is actually easier to pinpoint in the Old Testament prophets because they have a, you know, thus saith the Lord statement, Right. They're not saying, thus saith Jeremiah. They're saying, thus saith the Lord. Right. And yet, if we look back in church history at some of the earliest conversations on the topic of inspiration in the early church, 
you have guys like there's this guy named Theophilus of Antioch. And so he's writing a defense of the Christian faith in the second century. And he says, concerning the righteousness which the law enjoined, confirmatory speech are found both in the prophets and within the gospels because they all spoke inspired by one spirit of God. So Theophilus is making, in the earliest kind of discussions of this within church history, and remember, he's in the second century, so he's actually in the lifetime of the immediate uh, disciples of the apostles. So he very well could have known people who knew the apostles themselves. So he's not very far removed from this conversation. And he's making an argument that ties the exact same method of inspiration that the prophets possessed when they delivered the word of God with the gospel authors when they wrote down their biographical material concerning Jesus. One thing that I think is interesting, this is going to be further discussed in a moment, uh, is the book of Hebrews, we don't even know who the author is, but the early church said, no, but this is definitely the word of God. And so it's, it's interesting that the early church didn't have a problem with not knowing who the author was, because at the ultimately they're saying, well, the, the author is God. Now, that might be convoluted right. and, and problematic. I, I, I don't know. We're going to get more into that well, in a moment. Well, how do we know that's part of the Bible? Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. But I, I do think that's interesting, that the church is okay not knowing who the author of a book was. The authorship of Hebrew is bringing brought into question is actually more of a modern thing than an ancient thing. Anytime we have uh, the book of Hebrews mentioned within the early church, it's almost always associated with Paul. So they assume that the author is Pauline. I think that is a good example because I think actually today we don't believe Paul was the author, and there are various reasons for that. But even the Old Testament books, we don't know who wrote Chronicles and Kings, right? First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. And yet the early Jews had no problem accepting that as scripture. So in one sense, uh, human authorship was not as big of a deal as divine authorship. So there's sort of, and without getting too technical, historically, there are two Latin phrases that tie into the discussion of sacred scripture. So the first one is verbum Dei, which means the word of God. And the second is vox Dei, which means the voice of God. And I actually think we have this articulated by Jesus himself. So in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one, 31, he's having this discussion with the Sadducees. And it's about the nature of the resurrection. And you know, we all know that the Sadducees were sad, you see. <laughs> it's a classic because they didn't Shame they didn't believe you. in the resurrection and the pharisees <laughs> were fair you see because they did believe in the resurrection of the dead but that aside they have this like trap question that they come to jesus with and jesus has this really interesting answer because in matthew twenty two thirty one he says have you not read what was spoken to you by god and this is actually an awkward sentence no matter whether you're reading greek or english because he should say, have you not heard what was spoken to you? Or have you not read what was written to you? But that's not what he says. Jesus says, have you not read what was spoken to you? So in other words, he holds the Sadducees accountable, because then he goes on to quote Moses, as if when they read scripture, God is speaking directly to them. Mm. And so in that sense, you have both the Verbum Dei, the Word of God, and the Vox Dei, the Voice of God, communicated in the text where Jesus both equates and assumes that the voice of God is the voice of Moses, and that when the Sadducees are reading it, it's aimed directly at them with God speaking to them. How do we know then that this is the, the voice of God speaking through these authors, such as Paul? And sure. how and is this circular reasoning where, where we are saying that they're just claiming that authority, but mm -hmm. how do we know they have that authority to speak for God? So she didn't mention First Timothy 3.15, but I think that's what she was talking about, right? As, as you said earlier, Steve. Second Timothy 3.15 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. <laughs> so I'd make one specific point, and that is that the word we translate as scripture is the Greek word graphe. So it's where we get modern English words like graphic or calligraphy, right? Kals uh, means beautiful, and graph graphe means writing. So calligraphy is beautiful writing. And graphe, depending on the context, is the standard word for writing. 
Now, there's a specific reason why it's translated as scripture in your Bible. And part of that is the Jewish understanding of sacred scripture that was first and foremost related to texts. So Jesus himself uses this type of language when in Matthew 4, he's sparring with the devil during his 40 days in the desert, and he continually responds to Satan with gagraptai, it is written, which is the third person plural verbal form of graphe. So he's responding with, you know, it's written. Now, part of the problem here is that we use this English word inspiration, which comes from the Latin. And I know I'm throwing out all sorts of other languages apart from English, so forgive me here. But the Latin is inspiratus, which means to breathe into. But that's not exactly what Paul is talking about, because Paul is using a word that's found nowhere in the rest of the New Testament, where he basically takes two words, the word for God and the word for to blow, and he shoves them together and creates a new word, which literally translates to breathed out by God, theopnostos. And this is the linguistic visualization that Paul is trying to create. So the problem is, 1 Timothy 3.16 is not outlining the way in which God has communicated his information to us through the human writers, but the emphasis is on the source of the information itself. So in other words, Paul is not attempting to give us an explanation concerning the mechanism of divine inspiration, but he's holding, he's bolding rather, and underlying a concept that was already well understood within Jewish circles, that God, despite the fact that the scriptures include human authors, God is the primary author of scripture. Yeah, this is something mm-hmm. that the Jews definitely would have understood from the the Old Testament, and, and is going to get into a moment here where we're going to be asking, okay, what about Paul, though? And mm-hmm. now we're getting into the New Testament. Does he understand what he's doing in Scripture? But 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 what you're saying is the foundation's already there. They already understand that God speaks through people. It's it's and this is, at, which I think is a very interesting, very Christian understanding of this relationship between God and people as God is communicating uh, to people. But and now I think one of the things that we need to appreciate, though, with regards to this, is that is inherently circular, that that she's not wrong here. But I don't think that that means that, that it's uh, inherently false either. I mean, for example, if I'm called to the witness stand and I have to give a testimony about myself, right? Like, I'm going to be testifying on my own behalf. Uh, and you could say, well, on whose authority, you know, are you saying what you did on Tuesday night? And I'm like, well, I'm telling you what I did. Uh, on Tuesday night. Now, what happens is you can then take a look at the bigger context about, okay, well, Andy's saying he was here. Well, let's actually investigate that and see whether or not that lines up to whether or not he was in fact there. And and I guess the point that I'm trying to get at is if somebody says that their words are inspired, that that they are writing scripture, that ultimately that means that you can, you can investigate that. So I, I, I would say that it becomes faulty logic. I'm curious what, how you guys respond to this. I would say it becomes faulty logic if that's, the, if that's as far as it goes. How do I know where you were on Tuesday night, Troy? Right? <laughs> Troy's like, well, I, you know, I told you so, and, and that should be enough. And it's like, well, I want to I look in, and investigate that and see, well, do I have good reason to believe that Troy was where he said he was on Tuesday night? Yeah, yeah and, and I think uh, there's something to that uh, whole circular reasoning idea, because in a sense— all claims of authority, if you push it far enough, it's going to turn circular, right? Just like kind of like what you were saying when you're testifying about yourself in terms of your whereabouts that Tuesday night. Um, is that necessarily a bad thing or is that necessarily faulty? Well, no, you can actually investigate that and see see where it leads. On a bit of a kind of an incidental note, um, I, I'd love your feedback on this too, Wes, is as far as I understand, when Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, and he's referring to Scripture, he's really talking about the Old Testament, as far as I understand. So that kind of partly deals with the student's questions about, well, how did Paul know in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is, is inspired? Well, he wasn't referring to the New Testament, although like you were pointing out earlier, there there is this understanding, this Jewish background to all of this, where they expected that whenever a covenant was made, that there would be writings that are produced 
to kind of keep that covenant, right? Um, so what do you think, Wes? Am I completely out to lunch? No, I think you're you're exactly right. And it's it's good to mention that Paul is talking about the Hebrew Scripture, what we would call the Old Testament. He's not necessarily talking about his own writings, although Peter in 2 Peter 3.16, very similar, you know, citation, talks about Paul's writings and says that some things are hard to understand and some unstable and ignorant people distort them. And then he says, as they do with the other scriptures, equating Paul with scripture. So whatever's going on within the lifetime of the apostles, Paul is already being considered scripture. Real quick, just it's that first verse 15, just if people are wondering, how is he making this connection with Paul? Because Peter says it. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, and then goes on in verse 16 to equate that with Scripture. Yeah, and I don't think Paul would have necessarily thought his writings were Scripture, although I do think there is evidence in the New Testament that there are some authors that I think do think that their writings are Scripture. On that note, if I could just throw one more in there, because I do think this is interesting. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul does do something very interesting where he cites the Old Testament and the Gospel of Luke together um, as both as being Scripture. So you'd see those moments happening as well. Yeah, and I think we can undoubtedly say it is the Gospel of Luke. He's not kind of pulling from an oral tradition of Jesus because he uses the exact same phraseology in the same order as Luke does. And that's important because in Greek, you can put anything in any word order. And so uh, word order is not important for the actual, like, purpose of the statement. And so the fact that he uses the exact same word order, I think, points pretty strongly to the fact that he's quoting. He's quoting Luke's gospel as opposed to just kind of drawing on an oral tradition. And like you were saying before, uh, Steve, I think it's, it's continually important to reiterate that Paul is not inventing this idea, but we can actually derive similar, although not exact, statements operating from the same vantage point and perspective from Paul's Jewish contemporaries in people like Philo of Alexandria and Josephus, who say very similar things. In fact, Josephus, uh, he has a writing called Against Appion, and he states that unlike the pagans, Jews have a fixed number of scriptures, and then he gives the number. And then in his work Antiquities of the Jews, in both book three and book five, he uses the same word Paul uses. He says, now the scripture, the graphe, are laid up in the temple. So these aren't any regular books. They're writings that hold divine authorship to the point that they're actually housed in the same place where the presence of God dwells in the temple. And so this is, a, this is not a foreign concept. This is a concept that has already been established, that God has revealed himself through written words and... And that then leads into the question of there's an Old Testament canon, which I think we can say pretty conclusively, we know what it looked like in Jesus's day. And so then that gets into, okay, well, how does that relate to the New Testament canon with things like the Gospels and Paul? Now, I want to just push back a little bit, or maybe I misunderstood you, um, Wes, in that I would argue that that Paul does show in various places that he sees what he's doing as Scripture. Uh, and Maybe, maybe you would see this differently, but I think about, for example, here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, uh, in verse 37, Paul says, If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And then you also mm -hmm. see this at the end of Colossians, for example, and you see this uh, with regards to First Timothy and, and, and various others where he says, I want, you, I want this to be read at the churches and to be um, distributed. And he, there's this understanding of, of authority of, of what he's writing. I, I give other verses as well, but I don't know. What, what, do you have a pushback on that or would you agree? Yeah, I, I don't think I would push back very hard. I, I think that that's entirely possible. I think at the end of the day, I would say I don't know simply because my uh, 
formal area of academic expertise is in ancient letter writing. And we see similar formulations for letters that are meant to be read within communities because that's uh, the vast majority of people were illiterate. And so letters right. would be sent to communities and would hold certain standards of authority and they would have been read in the like community aspect. But I think it's entirely possible for Paul to not just be doing what was a standard practice in ancient letter writing, but then to also undergird it. And I think this plays into the conversation of what Steve alluded to earlier, which I can go into a little bit more of the fact that a new covenant was established. And so therefore there was an understanding that that would have been followed up by writing. And Paul could have understood his writings as some of those formal, you know, um, scriptural texts that go after the covenant is established. So what do you, what do you guys feel are some of the main evidences to believe that the writings of Paul and Peter and others particularly I'm talking about the New Testament here, are in fact inspired. Well, um, I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle. I first want to address the question, would even God do this sort of thing where, where he communicates with us? Because in a sense, if you think about it, it, it's a weird question that we're even worrying about whether, in, in asking whether our, which books are inspired, we're assuming that God would inspire writings, right? And so... I think, and push back all you want, but I think your worldview context could be important here. Uh, so uh, I can come at it from a few different angles. For one, um, I can first look at the writings that we have of the life of Jesus and establish the historicity of the resurrection, as many people do. Now, if that's true, now, mind you, when historians do this, they don't assume inspiration of these texts, right? That these are, you know, these are all true because these are inspired by God, but rather they take it to be just like any other ancient documents. They use certain his historiographical standards to f kind of sort out, okay, what's authentic, what's not. And, and we've done this before where we kind of talked about the, you know, wh whether Jesus actually historically rose from the dead. And we would say yes, uh, um, and for many reasons. Now, if that did happen, now we're living in a supernatural world, right, where God exists, and we need to give way more weight to the kinds of claims that Jesus made all of a sudden, right? And what was the thing that he said about Scripture, right? So I, I kind of—so that seems to me a less kind of a circular way of coming about it, because I don't assume then inspiration from the get-go— and see, without assuming inspiration, we can establish that Jesus rose from the dead, which seems to me to validate the claims that he's made. And so, and then this also kind of has an impact on your worldview. Now, if that gets established, if Jesus' resurrection gets established, then now you're, you're, you're operating in a world that, that God exists. And so then that, to me, addresses some of the students' questions about, well, aren't, aren't these sinful men? It's like, well, yeah, they and they have their own biases, but how does that stop God from producing the kinds of writings that He wants to produce? D does that make sense? I I want to be honest in saying I've never actually wrestled with that in my walk, and not not for not because I haven't had challenges, not because I haven't had questions, but it's because of where my relationship is with Jesus and some of the things that I see scripture asking of us, if this was written entirely from just human concept and human human desire, some of the things like in Romans 12, where it says, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is, that request does not line up for a human that has a desire to manipulate somebody. For me, because you're asking something that one is challenging you to a higher level of thought, a higher level of thinking, but the reality is you within your own bodily nature are not capable of doing that. When I look at scripture from that place, the things that the Lord is asking me of, I see this beautiful relationship in it of saying, 
well, this couldn't have been written by person because if they're saying that they're finite, they're saying that they are incapable of doing this, then it must be God requesting this of me, even if it is through person. But because he's in communion with me, my relationship with him is what is going to make this come to pass and nothing else. No matter how much of scripture I read, no matter how much I've studied, all of those sorts of things, I will never fully be capable of living up to that standard. And I just, I just don't see a human being being able to solely do that or desire to do that by themselves. Well, and I think that relational part is important because we do worship a God who is relational and invites us into that process. And we can at minimum understand that as Christians, as fallible humans, we can communicate the truth of the gospel and that divine truth can still come through us, even if we do it inadequately. That can still be communicated through that. I think, Steve, I agree with what you said. I think here would be my caveat, um, because what immediately came to my head was a quote from Karl Barth, who was a 19th century Swiss theologian. And he said that the way that God reveals himself is through events, not propositions which I think is fundamentally incorrect because the Bible is not merely a narrative record of events where we are told the story of what happened and then left for ourselves to interpret its meaning. I mean, the Bible is no less than the record of what happened, but it's so much more because it's the authoritative, prophetic, apostolic interpretation of the meaning of the event. So the cross and the resurrection, those aren't events that happened in vacuums that God leaves mm-hmm. us to figure right. out what the implications were. We're given it in context, say the cross as a Roman torture device, as well as its theological significance where Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb who is our redemption and therefore the cross. And as Paul describes it, was an atonement offered to satisfy the justice of God and the means by which mercy and grace are then mm-hmm. credited to undeserved sinners in order that we brought back into we are brought back into right right relationship with our maker. And so in that sense, I think, yes, our faith definitely hinges on the event of the resurrection, but that has significance because that all the law and the prophets are pointing to that. So it has a context of Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of God. And that comes from the Old Testament scripture, like who Jesus is, it's, it's not just floating. It has a lot of background to it that comes from the background of, of Hebrew scripture. Yeah, and, and I think you're also kind of alluding to this idea of the unity of the whole Bible, right? And I know you, some, you have many times given talks on, you know, the unity of the Bible and how it was produced in three different continents by over some you know, 40 authors uh, in three different languages and, and so on and so forth, right? And over the course of some 1,500 years uh, of the production and it's all heading... Now, so there there are certain things like when, when you say, yes, the, the prophets and, and these writings are pointing to, for example, Jesus, right? So, such that we can make sense of the cross and, and so on and so forth. That in itself is actually pretty incredible to me that... that if this was purely a product of human imagination, I can't really account for that, that kind of unity that is kind of pointing to Jesus and, and beyond kind of thing. Well, and one thing that I think is interesting here, Steve and Wes, is Jesus even notes this in his sermon in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, I, I, haven't, I haven't come to get rid of the law, right? I've come to fulfill the law. So he understands himself within the, the history of what God's doing and that he is fulfilling that and that there is this continuity. And I want to bring this up because I want I want to keep pushing you guys on this idea of how do we know it's inspired and maybe to to push back again on this, let me juxtapose it to Islam. With Islam you've got Muhammad. Muhammad comes along and he goes into this cave, has this experience in which the angel Gabriel begins to speak to him, and he he's instructed to to memorize this, to write it down. And long story short, this is going to become these these sayings or what are called surahs are going to get written down into the Quran. And so, if you've ever if you've ever opened the Quran, if you ever looked at it, it is arranged according to surahs. It starts with the largest 
sayings and goes to the smallest ones. And ultimately, you know, Muhammad comes back again, long story short, and says, you know, here is this book that is eternal word that is God's word that was given to me through this angel. And I think that there's a lot of people that would hear that and go, okay, what's the difference between Paul and Muhammad? As the main difference would be our understandings of inspiration. The, the Quran was understood as if we're going by the traditional narrative, it was revealed over the course of 25 years. Right. So Muhammad throughout a 25 year period would, would get um, inspiration and he would, you know, the, the traditional. Hey, I did say long story short, man. I, you did, you did. <laughs> I, I, yes. Cause I, I agree with all of that. I understand all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and, and at that point, the idea is, so Muslims <laughs> will push back very strongly if you refer to the, uh, to Muhammad as the author, because they don't believe that there is any iota of human authorship in the Quran. Right. And that's so, a good distinction. Yeah. Whereas we do. And this is often one of the stumbling blocks when Muslims pick up the Bible is they'll open up to Paul talking to Timothy and saying, you know, bring me a cloak because I'm cold and more parchment so that I can write. And they're Some like, wine. this is not the word of God. What is this, right? Because their understanding is what is sometimes referred to as divine dictation in that Muhammad was literally the mouse, mouthpiece of God. He went into a trance or it just was like downloaded into his brain and it came out. There are some medieval paintings of uh, the the evangelists where they have like Matthew sitting in a chair and there's an angel with a horn and the horns in Matthew's ear and and he, Matthew sitting and writing at the table that's that's like kind of a, a Christianized version of divine dictation but when we have the Bible we have it in what's sometimes referred to as plenary verbal inspiration in that we believe that there's a human author who is communicating something in a specific time, in a specific place, to a specific audience. And so, you know, when Steve and I do podcasts where we talk about how Bible verses are misinterpreted, um, we can talk, Steve says, you know, the Bible is written, the Bible wasn't written to you, but it's written for you. That, that statement can't be said about the Quran, because the Quran, the original author, or the original audience is everybody, everywhere at all times. Whereas we can talk about Paul's historical and geographical setting and how then we can make application from that. But that goes back to what I think Troy was saying in the fact that the God of the Bible is relational, that he invites the human process into that. And so Paul and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Jude, all those guys, they are being used as tools to communicate ultimately what the Holy Spirit intends to be communicated for faith and practice of the church. Now, I think this is a really important distinction that we won't we won't camp here, but just to make quickly a uh, difference between the Quran versus the Bible in that the Quran very much has this concept that the power of the words, in fact, are the words. It's one of the reasons why they memorize the words and sing the words, even if they don't even know the language of Arabic for example. Uh, but, and, and, and not, to, not to be rude or anything, but Muslims very much see the Quran as a magic book in that regard, that, that it's kind of like when you like, oh, if you recite this saying, like this has power, they very much have that kind of understanding that the words have the power, whereas in the Bible, it's the meaning that in fact has the power. The, the Bible is not viewed as a magic book. It's not viewed as the words have, have the 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 power it it is very much that relational concept that god has spoken through people the holy spirit has spoken through people and it is that that meaning that is being applied that has the power that's that's well said andy it's perfectly outlined to at least to me in like second corinthians 3 where it just says you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all and you show that you are a letter from christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And that just, I think, I think when anytime I've kind of wrestled with seeing how the world is or, or how the church has been, you know, anytime I've had a critique as a, 
as a believer, you know, and wondering, okay, well, if this is what Scripture says, why are we not living it out? I've had to come back to this verse and recognize, well, I'm that letter of recommendation. If my life is not reflected, then of course I'm going to wrestle with authorship. I may wrestle with, is the Bible true? Is the Bible real? Well, it may not be real if you're not enacting it, if you're not presenting it. Well, this is an important point, I think, that gets actually to how do I know that it's inspired? One of the ways that we know that it's inspired is we look at the the lives of those people that we're saying were inspired by God. So I can look at the life of Jesus, for example, and I can say, okay, who, who was he? You know, and this is one of the things that Jesus does right away is he gets people starting to think about who, who is talking to you right now? I think about, I brought up many times before Mark chapter two, where they bring a paralytic to Jesus and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, whoa, whoa, you know, you're, you're speaking like you're God. And now all of a sudden they're starting to be asking the same questions that this girl's asking. Like, are, are you who you're claiming to be? Do you, do you actually have that authority? And Jesus is saying mm-hmm. to those people, hey, you don't know if I have that authority, right? You don't, you don't know if I can actually do what I just said I did. But listen, I'll just I'll, I'll take it up a notch, right? And I'll show you that I have authority. And he says to the men, stand up and walk. And, and so you get this idea that there's the, that with regards to inspiration, you know, you're looking at the life of the person, you're looking what's being said, and you're looking at the context of what's happening and saying, okay, do I have good reason to believe? In this case, when we're talking about Jesus, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They, say, they apply the same thing to Paul. Okay, do I have good reason to believe that Paul was who he claimed to be and, in fact, was inspired by the Holy Spirit? Well, and I think even in relation to the, the email, we can look at someone like Paul, who was a known persecutor and violent extremist against Christians, right? And what is it that completely upends his life and makes him do a 180. It's uh, an experience with Jesus that profoundly moves him. And then it's almost as if, you know, his eyes are opened and he's able to see, okay, well, all the scriptures, they actually expound who Jesus is. And I think that's in part what I was saying more at the beginning is where the English word inspiration might fail us because Paul himself in 2 Timothy is not describing God breathing into the text when he talks about scripture, but rather that the text itself is breathing out divine truth towards us. It's like if you hold your hand in front of your face, you can feel the hot air. I have a lot more hot air than most people, but you can (laughs) feel that hot air, right? And that's why Jesus can hold his audience accountable to the words of Moses as if they were there, despite the fact that there was a couple of thousand years between Moses on Mount Sinai and the Sadducees that he's talking to in in the Matthew passage I quoted earlier. Now, Wes, I think this is a key point that you're making here, because what's happening then in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And what's happening in the New Testament, the New Testament is pointing to Jesus. So in other words, you don't have this guy, Paul, coming along saying, hey, an angel Gabriel speaking to me and telling me that everything that I'm telling you is truth and that you should follow me and do everything that I say. No, what you have, and you actually have Peter saying this, confirming this. No, no, no. Paul's telling you about Jesus, and he's he is helping you to better understand who Jesus is, and in fact that he did do what he said he'd do in Matthew chapter five. He has fulfilled the law. He has fulfilled what God was doing all the way uh, from the beginning. This isn't a new thing. It's the same thing, uh, and again, it's resting on the 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 person of Jesus. I think that's a key point, don't you? Th- this isn't about. Paul's church, Peter's church, John's church, right? Jude's church, James's church. This is about Jesus' church, and they're all pointing to the same person. And it relates to the issue of authority because Jesus holds the authority of, as you said before, you know, the one who can forgive sins, God himself made flesh. And then he gives that authority to his apostles to communicate that truth. And that's exactly what we have in the New Testament. And that's why when the early church, so this relates to the the last question, the question about like the canon of scripture, the right books of scripture. In one sense, there was no criteria. So if Troy hops in his time machine and goes back to the second century and says, hey, why did you choose Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and first, second Corinthians? The Christian is going to look back at him and say, what are you talking about? I don't speak English. But they're also going to (laughs) say... (laughs) (laughs) Because in that sense, 
they would say, we didn't choose these books. These were the books that were given to us by the apostles. And that's where when we have guys like Theophilus of Antioch, who I quoted earlier, or Irenaeus, who are only one generation removed from the apostles themselves, they're talking as if they're carrying on the tradition that was given to them directly from the apostles. So when they're able to look through books that are being discussed as scripture, they are directly related to the source of the books that were handed down from the immediate followers of Jesus. And the connection there, the chain of custody is extremely early. Now let's let's just talk about that quickly as we get into this last conversation, because really, if you follow what we did here, we actually answered num- question number two first, then we circled back onto question number one. We're on to question number three here. Uh, how is scripture determined? And Wes, what you're saying here, I think is just so critical because a lot of people come to the question with a lot of cultural baggage and they assume that all of a sudden the church is like, hey, we should probably just uh, make a Bible here. But think about it. Think about it according to what happened. Jesus comes, right? He's fulfilling the law and these disciples are with him. They begin to start People are starting to write about this. We have gospels being written. We have letters that are being written to the early church that's forming and that's expanding and growing. And these letters are being read out loud in these church services. And you have this canon, if you you know, which is this word for standard, this rule, is is our it's just naturally forming. So it's not like they're like, hey, what's scripture? It's like, no, here Paul wrote a letter and they start reading it, and this becomes a part of what they do. They read these letters. This is a this is a part of—it's like you're saying, Wes, if you would have gone back in a time machine and asked, what'd you choose? They'd be like, that's just a weird way of putting it. We we didn't choose these. Well, and like like uh, I think Steve was alluding to earlier, first century Judaism, as well as early Christianity, was covenantal. And when looking at the writings leading up to the first century, an interpretation of what can be described as covenantal categories is seen very strongly. So the Jewish people understood the actions of God— through the lens of his covenantal promises. So when we get the earliest Christian writings, this theological covenantal mindset, it just crosses over. And so this is what, um, there's a, a guy named uh, Michael J. Kruger, who is the uh, president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, he, in one of his books, uh, mm-hmm. Canon Revisited, he says the acts of Jesus that are circulating in the oral Jesus stories and recorded in the Gospels, that they're framed in the context of Jesus bringing with him the new covenant. And so the Jews already understood that, you know, Moses makes a covenant on Sinai, and then you have literally it inscribed on tablets. And when there are covenantal promises made through the prophets, you have statements like, write it on a scroll, inscribe it on a tablet. And the New Testament community, the early Jesus community, they saw things like the Last Supper as a covenantal meal. They saw, you know, Zechariah is understanding the coming of his son, John the Baptist, as fulfilling of God's covenantal promises of the coming Messiah. Paul describes the apostles as bringing, uh, as being ministers of the new covenant. And so I think the organic question that would have been going on the Christians' minds is, okay, we got the new promised covenant from Jeremiah 31, 31, um, that says, you know, he's making a new covenant uh, with, he's making a covenant with a new people that he's inscribing on their hearts. Okay, where's the books? Where are those going to be? Where's the written text? I think it would have been just organic in that process that they would have, these Christians, by virtue of their Christian heritage, would have naturally seen these promises manifested in conjunction with written scriptural books. Now, this is an important concept then to understand with regards to the question that was being asked. So so did a bunch of people come together and say, hey, we're going to pick out what is the inspired canon of God? Again, that's a really weird way and an incorrect historical way of seeing it. No, these books were organic, developed within the church, and were already from the very beginning understood to be scripture. And you see that quite clearly historically. Now, Wes, this I think is an important concept. That, that even happens to today. And that is, when a book is popular, there's a whole lot of other books that start getting written. And especially when you're living in ancient times, you start having different people coming through town saying that they've got scripture or that they're inspired by God or that you need to read this book in church or whatever it might be. 
the same thing was happening back then. Uh, really, as I see the solidifying of the canon, if you will, I would say it had already happened. But what I see this girl asking is when people did come together in a council, it wasn't asking what should be put in. They already knew what that was. When you agree, really, it was just saying, hey, by the way, those things, those are not scripture. Yeah. So basically, the earliest point that we can recognize, there's virtually no argument about 24 of the 27 books we have in our New Testament. The only argument comes when they're not sure they can unanimously tie an author to the namesake of the the writing. And part of that was that there were these other Christian groups who were appropriating Jesus. So sometimes they're called the Gnostics or the Doketics um, or the Ebionites, these other kind of heretical groups that have no historical connection to Jesus, but they want to kidnap Jesus <laughs> and, and make him their theological guy too. Well, I think they also and want to so play off of the popularity, don't you? I think I would say yes and no, because it depends what time frame you're looking at. It wasn't very popular to be a Christian throughout a lot That's of these true. time periods. That's true. There was a time, I guess I was thinking later when you start seeing. And I think there's a recognition that Jesus was someone special. He did special things. And particularly with Gnosticism, although it gets tricky with Gnosticism because there isn't one Gnosticism, it's kind of like new age. There isn't one like systematic theology of the new age. It's like a bunch of smorgasbord things that are kidnapped from Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, <laughs> Eastern esotericism and all that. So Gnostic, Gnostics uh, existed prior to Christianity, and they make their way into the geographical areas that are, Christians are living in, and they start appropriating Jesus. And so plagiarism uh, these days is I take all of Andy Steiger's stuff because I know he's smart and I put my name on it, right? Because I want people to think uh, I'm as smart as Andy Steiger. See where, where I'm going, Troy? It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a good strategy. Yeah, the ancient that. world, though, <laughs> in the ancient world, there were a lot of writings in the first few centuries with names like John and Peter and Thomas associated with them. And so when the Christians had writings that they'd already deemed as orthodox, they had the right teaching from the apostles. But you had multiple writings of John and multiple writings of Peter. The, and then, you know, you have the Gospel of John, you have the Revelation of John, you have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. They wanted to make sure that they, they could tie that to John directly. So any book that had a question mark on it, it wasn't that they were like, we just really don't know about this book. The question is almost always, can we tie this to an apostle or someone who knew an apostle? And can we do the homework to try to verify that? In other words, they wanted to make sure what they had was inspired by God and not some book that was that was written or something that shouldn't be a part. Uh, but like what you were saying earlier, we're not talking about a lot here. We're saying that there were a few that were in question, but by and large, there was wholesale agreement of what in fact was uh, the New Testament. And when that agreement was made, it was universal. Yeah, the evidence was there pretty quickly. And and that those kinds of um, agreements didn't just come arbitrarily either, right? Because we, for example, we do have some of the writings that bear the name of Peter or Philip or Mary, Thomas, those kinds of things. I was actually going through the Mag Hamidi library stuff there, where you get some of the Gnostic writings, like, you know, Infancy Gospel of Thomas uh, or, or something like that. Um, now, when you go through some of these, like, you can tell they're either quoting the four gospels or, or something else, right? Like kind of quoting a verbatim. So we know these came much later or something of that sort, right? And, and I remember this one point that was made, like, because in a sense, part of, okay, how do I know that these writings are inspired? Part of it has to do with, okay, are these historically reliable, for example? Because if they're historically unreliable, I think we can safely rule out, okay, maybe these are not inspired kind of thing. You know what I mean? And there are some reasons to think that the scripture that we have are historically reliable. And I know, Wes, this is your wheelhouse, and you've spoken many times on the undesigned coincidences and how the different parts of the New Testament, for example, interlock in an unexpected way. Um or, or, you know, so that, you know, we have some reason to believe that, oh, yeah, these are historically reliable. Um, another one is just the kinds of names that were used, right? Um, so, for example, I remember when 
um, my kids came along, one of the things that we decided to do as a family was to give them an English name as well as a Korean name. So their middle names are both Korean names. Um, and it was kind of up to me because Sharina doesn't know Korean that well. It was up to me to come up with names that are appropriate for them. Now, um, I didn't want to give them names that would, you know, for example, get them bullied if they had lived in Korea or whatever. And one of the things I tried to avoid was give them names that sounded too old, names that would have fit my grandmother's generation, but not necessarily their generation. I mean, you know what I mean, right? Andy, you and me, you know, we're almost the same age. You know that you know, we have a lot of friends that are named Brian, Michael, Jennifer. You know, those are those are were the kinds of names that were used in our generation. And you look at our children's generation, their names are very different. Like more like Ethan or, you know, whatever, right? Like different names. Um, and and so you can kind of tell, like, for example, if you were writing a novel, if let, let's say somebody was just completely trying to, you know, make up the stories of the, uh, of the New Testament, let's say, about the life of Jesus, but you're like two centuries removed, what are the chances of you actually knowing what kinds of names that were used two centuries ago, just as I can't imagine what kinds of names might have been used in France in the 1800s, right? Um, I don't know. So there are some reasons to think that, okay, these things are historically reliable. It's not in the ancient world too, when they were figuring out, okay, do these belong in the canon, right? They, they didn't just decide on it arbitrarily. They had reasons to reject some writings um, and while accepting others. I think it's important just to just to clarify what we're saying there though is when it comes to the Bible, it wasn't like they were trying to figure out what should be in. They're they were making sure that they all understood what shouldn't be in, what should right. be out. Right. Because they already had the this established like again, Wes, you said there were a couple that they weren't sure about, but by and large, the vast majority, they understood what what made up uh the New Testament. Yeah. The problem is you have all these other popular documents creeping up and people are like, Man, what are we supposed to do? Are those are those in, not in? Right, they needed something where people just said, "Hey, just just so you know, those those are not scripture. They're they're circulating wildly." We have the same thing happening today, right? Where somebody starts preaching a certain message or a certain type of teaching, and people are like, "Hey, is that is that Christian? Is that Orthodox?" Right? And you have to have these meetings. We're like, "Hey, by the way, that's not Orthodox." No, it's not like we're all of a sudden deciding what Christian theology is. We're saying, "No, we've already known what Christian theology is, but we're letting you know that that just so you understand, that's not it." You know that. That also happens on a more like a social media level. You remember, I was listening to some of our old podcasts, and I remember uh, when we were at our retreat last year, we were laughing over the fact that Wes's uh, Facebook account was hijacked, <laughs> right? And all these like Indonesian video gaming, like whatever s content was being streamed. And, and you look at that and you go, hang on a second, that's not Wes, right? I mean, and, and you can mm. tell that that's not Wes because that's just not he what got, Wes does. He got hacked. So, yeah. 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 And so so we can we we do that kind of without a second thought almost uh in our day as well, right? So That's a that's a really good example. You know who Wes is, and so therefore when he's live streaming uh RPG games on his ministry Facebook account, it's that's that raises red flags, right? Like it it has the flavor of inauthenticity. And the the way I sometimes put it is that the early Christians didn't choose the books. They recognized the books that already had the authority. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't external choosing of what has authority. It was internal already recognizing the authority they possessed. And so in that sense, the, the early church was very concerned with, okay, we already have a framework for inspiration, going back to the email question. We recognize that there's a voice of God, right? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And so we want to make sure that we're doing our homework so that the church knows what God has revealed and what he hasn't, right? Who has an infallible knowledge of the canon? Well, the person who wrote it, right? Who has an infallible knowledge of the canon of Harry Potter? Well, it's J.K. Rowling. It's not anyone else. She knows that she did write something or didn't write something else. And so God is the person who has the infallible knowledge. And I think as Christians, we can say that the Holy Spirit was guiding those early Christians in the foundation years of the church to establish the books that God intended 
to be recognized that both bared his authority and his voice for the establishment of the church early on and for the establishment of the church to the end of time. Well, and maybe here's a good question, Wes, to throw back at you as we come in for a landing here. And that is, okay, but I, I hear what you're saying, but does that mean that somebody can write scripture today? Can Is the New Testament closed? Um, can Can we still add scripture to it? Yeah, we as Christians do not believe in Latter-day Revelation. So we would say unanimously that the canon of Scripture is closed because the category to define what was Scripture, particularly for the New Testament, was did they know Jesus or someone who knew Jesus? Because notice what you said there, Latter-day Revelation, Revelation about who? Well, Jesus. So we want to know who is who has the authority to tell you about Jesus. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. Yeah. Unless you have personally met Jesus during the time of his earthly ministry, then you can't write scripture. <laughs> now, this brings up an interesting point, because when you're reading Paul's letters, he constantly is going out of his way to establish his uh, authority, his apostleship. And the, the reason is because of what's, what Wes is saying here. He didn't encounter Jesus. But Paul would say, no, I did encounter Jesus. Well, and that's why I was specific to say during his earthly ministry, not necessarily during the time of his earthly ministry, not necessarily during his earthly ministry. Because when Paul meets Jesus, he's already ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I think there's a good argument to say that Paul saw Jesus in a vision, but it was still within the apostolic period of when the apostles were teaching the gospel. Would we say then that it needed to be somebody who either knew Jesus personally, like an apostle, or somebody who had uh, a connection to an apostle, such as somebody like Luke or Mark? Yes, exactly. And that's why Luke and Mark fit the criteria, because the earliest traditions is that they're tied directly to the apostolic community, Mark with Peter and Luke with Paul, and then the um, leaders of the faith in Jerusalem. That also shows the significance of Peter putting his stamp on Paul, is, is Peter's really saying, yes, Paul, in fact, does apply and does have apostolic authority. Yeah. So I think there are multiple levels of having confidence in the doctrine of inspiration that are both theological in the sense that uh, we recognize that God's voice was in these documents and they lasted throughout the centuries and were recognized by the church throughout the centuries as such that there was a guiding of the Holy Spirit. And there's a historical argument to the canon of Scripture. These are the only books, the 27 books we call the New Testament, that come from the time frame of either someone who knew Jesus or someone who knew someone who knew Jesus, full stop. None of the other books that were argued, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas, all those other ones, not commodity library documents, they're all coming in decades and centuries when those people attached to their names would have been dead. I think that's great. There's lots more that we could talk about here. I get the feeling that one of the questions that's implied in this email, and maybe this could be a podcast for another time, is that ultimately, what, what kind of revelation are we talking about the New Testament is? Well, it's revelation about Jesus, who Jesus is and what, what he has uh, accomplished for us. But what do you do about those moments where Paul's writing his letters to the churches and he starts telling them to do things that are things not to do with Jesus, right? And I think that begins to raise these theological questions for people, well, has the, is that revelation then? And we can think about different, you know, different things where he's talking to these churches about what's going on there. And people are going, okay, is, well, is that coming from God? Because, I, I mean, I just got back from Romania, and a live debate there is whether or not women should wear head coverings. And again, they get this strike directly from the Apostle Paul. So I know I just opened up a can right. of worms, but that could be a good one to come back to another time. Yeah, to which I, was, I would say retroactively, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed right. and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And even though Paul may not have been referring to himself, I think because the Spirit of God is undergirding that, we can say that Scripture wasn't written to you in the sense that these letters had original audiences, but it was written for you. And understanding who it was written to allows the Spirit of God to help us understand how it applies to us today. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the AC Podcast. As always, make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms. We are on all of them. And if today's episode was encouraging to you or it was challenging, feel free to send us an email at info at apologeticscanada.com and let us know your thoughts. Just like this email, you too could potentially have a question that could make it on the show. So if you have an idea, again, use the same email, info at apologeticscanada.com with your question or your idea. Make sure to tune in next week when we find more things to think about. But you know the drill. Love God. Love people. Bye for now.